The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Prostate disease is a common condition affecting one in two men in their lifetimes, making it a problem that we should learn more about and talk more about. What is concerning with prostate cancer is that there may not be any symptoms and in many men, prostate cancer can progress slowly and silently. So today we're going to speak with a leading consultant neurologist from the Prostate Clinic, Dr. Tom Shannon. And in a later podcast, we will speak with a nurse practitioner and sexologist, Melissa Hadley-Barrett, to start a conversation about sexual dysfunction that can occur after being treated for prostate cancer. We're with Dr. Tom Shannon at the Prostate Clinic, and we're going to talk all about prostate cancer today. Tom is a fantastic expert in this area. So where exactly is the prostate? So the prostate's a gland that sits underneath the bladder. It's, uh, it's tucked away right at the base of the pelvis. So when we operate on it, it's really difficult to reach. But when we examine it, we can feel it near the back passage because it's so low down and right next to the rectum. Is it very big? It varies. So when when you're really young, it's really very small. Mm -hmm. And then once uh, testosterone kicks in, it grows and it keeps growing the rest of your life. Why do you get cancer there? Well, look, cancer can happen in in just about any organ, but the higher the cell turnover, Mm. the more chances are there are for a DNA mutation and a cancer to occur. So glandular tissue, especially tissue that might uh, respond to hormones. So prostate cancer is a lot like breast cancer in that it's a a glandular hormone-sensitive cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And men have... uh, you know, beyond their reproductive age, they're getting turnover in these glands uh, and the more turnover they get, the more chances there are you can develop a cancerous uh, growth. The prostate has a job. Yeah, what's its job? Um, it, it helps you have kids. It okay. makes fluid yeah. that nourishes sperm. Yeah. And it's part of the plumbing that mm-hmm. allows you to have kids. Okay. But once you've had your kids, it's pretty much a useless organ. Right. And we then get two problems with it. We get mm. problems from an enlarging prostate and an obstruction or blockage to the pipe where you pass your water. Okay. So we get increasing problems with passing urine as you get older. Mm-hmm. And the second problem we get is cancer. How many men are getting prostate cancer? So, so prostate cancer is really common. Mm-hmm. It's very, very common. And the lifetime risk in Australia is one in five. Wow. It's more common than breast cancer. Yeah, I heard this. Yes, it is. So why isn't then, I mean, in Australia, and I know we have listeners in the US as well and all around the world, but why is it that breast cancer seems to get a lot of coverage and prostate cancer not so much, is it? Look, it's always the big question, especially where I sit in my practice, because awareness is the key to beating this disease. So as women, we talk more. And maybe men not so much? Well, there's a lot of factors, I think. I I think one of them is that women can do self-examination. Yes. um, And mammograms are pretty straightforward to do. Yes. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that with with prostate cancer, there really are no symptoms, there's no lumps, there's nothing to feel. 
But there's also been uh, a lot of worry that the tests that we use to detect prostate cancer might not be as reliable as we want it to be. The reality is, is it's probably the best cancer detection tool that we've got out of all the cancer detection tools. Okay. But it's what happens next that becomes really important. So the problem with prostate cancer detection is not so much in the PSA test. Mm. It's in how it's interpreted and what happens following that. So with the prostate, there can be consequences to undergoing treatments for prostate cancer. Right. The prostate is in a part of the body. It's very different to the breast in women. So although it's a horrible thing to have a breast cancer and a mastectomy, they often... The breast can be preserved. Nobody really knows. Mm. It's, it's fatty tissue. Whereas with prostate cancer, it's surrounded by some really vital structures. Mm. So we weigh through the middle of it so we can affect water works and especially water control. And the nerves that are essential to get erections are literally plastered on the prostate. Mm. And they're special nerves that don't have a coating on them, so they're very sensitive. So if we move them around then generally there's a period where we can lose erections. Mm -hmm. So the key for us with prostate cancer is to find it early enough that we can save all the structures that are close. Mm. So ideally with prostate surgery, you want to be just removing the prostate, saying super close to the prostate. Mm. And you can only do that safely if you find the cancer early. So then on that note, you've mentioned there's no signs and symptoms that a man will feel. So then what should they do then to be diagnosed early? Well, we're kind of lucky in Australia in that a large group of doctors and scientists and community groups, they all got together mm. to develop a consensus guideline to how we detect and treat early prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And what that came away after it did an evidence-based review is that they came back and said that men need to have a PSA blood test every two years from the age of 50 mm -hmm. or start from the age of 40 if there's a positive family history. So the blood test will pick up cancer in the vast majority of people who have prostate cancer. So is it just a blood test? Is it, well, you can just do a blood test. I also recommend that they do the rectal examination. Mm -hmm. um, the rectal examination on its own can pick up lumps and bumps that we might worry uh, are not actually cancers, but it'll also find cancers fairly early in some cases where the PSA blood test doesn't go up. And those cancers tend to be quite aggressive, so they're really good ones to pick up. So you can have a blood test and the PSAs be normal and then yeah. still might have You can, cancer. you can. It's, it's uncommon, but in those cases, the cancers are quite bad. So prostate cancer is like a lot of other cancers in that there is a, a spectrum of severity. So some of the cancers are very serious or going to jump into the bloodstream and have a very high chance of setting up somewhere else and metastasizing, and others are slow growing. Now, the, the conventional wisdom is that most of them are slow growing. Mm. That's not the reality. The reality is that 70 to 80% of them are the more aggressive, faster growing cancers. So historically, there's been this worry that we do all these blood tests and we pick up a bunch of cancers that would never have hurt people. Mm. And, and that's not what we've seen. So it is safer to actually stick to those guidelines. If you've got prostate cancer in your family, then you should start going to your doctor, getting a blood test at 
40? At 40. And then waiting until 50? Or do you find men sort of even between the age of 40 and 50 will... So for all men... Yep. And this is, this is not necessarily what the guidelines said, but, but for all men, if you do a test at 40, mm. you can predict your future risk of prostate cancer by knowing what your level is. So if your level is in the upper range for your age... What's that? What? Well, it varies. So, oh, okay. so depending on your age when you have yep. your first test. But at the age of 40, the vast majority of people will have a PSA reading less than 0.4. Mm-hmm. Um, so if your reading is 0.6 or 0.7, that's still a very low reading, but your lifetime risk is higher. So those people could be watched a bit more closely and then other people a bit less so. Mm. But the issue is not so much around the PSA test itself. So to diagnose prostate cancer, you do need to have a biopsy. Okay. And the biopsy, you'll get blood in the water and you get blood in the semen. There is around a one in 500 risk for our patients here of getting an infection with a biopsy. So where would they have a biopsy done? With the urologist? Yes, the urologist does that biopsy. So typically what we do these days is we do an MRI scan first. Okay. And the MRI scan's been really useful. And if the MRI scan doesn't show a cancer and the patient's older, we generally won't do a biopsy. Mm -hmm. So we probably do half as many biopsies as we used to. Mm. But when we do do a biopsy... Um, patients are asleep and we put an ultrasound probe in the back passage. Okay. And if we find a cancer there, we're generally going to classify you in one of three groups. Mm-hmm. you either got a low-risk cancer, moderate-risk or a high-risk cancer. And then what we do next is determined by how long we expect that patient to live. Mm. So if you've got a very low-risk prostate cancer but you may only live another 10 or 15 years, we're probably not going to treat. So Mm. we avoid the side effects of surgery or radiotherapy by not treating the low-risk ones. And we're really one of the only cancers that do that. Mm. And so we have a very uh, strong program for active surveillance. So the important thing there is that men don't really need to be too worried about actually having the test in the first place because if we find a low-risk cancer, you might not need treatment. Mm. And in the US, um, a large number of men have low-risk prostate cancer. In Australia, it's the minority. It's around 20 to 30% So why is risk. there a difference there? We really don't know. I mean, in general, some of our men are probably being tested a bit later in the disease. And if you can imagine with cancer, once upon a time, cancer was a normal cell. And then something happened to change it into a low-risk cancer cell. And that same force can turn a low-risk cancer cell into a higher-risk cancer cell. Mm. So time is quite important with, yeah. with cancer. Okay. By the sound of it, with cancer, is that it could go from low-risk to high-risk? Yeah, it can. So right. we're about to – we're doing a review of our low-risk patients who've been watched for a period of time mm. because it is a new thing to have cancers and not treat them. Mm. People don't realise that well, there's a lot of breast cancers, for example, that are removed that are low risk. Mm. Um, there's a lot of bowel cancers that are removed that are low risk and there's minimally invasive ways to do that. Um, the consequences of removing low-risk prostate cancers are a bit bigger. So, yes. so we're, we're trying to watch those ones. Um, and that is our worry is that some of them do progress, some of them will change. And but do you get men that don't want surveillance? They want to... You, you do, and, and, and obviously, um, you know, we guide and advise yes. people. But 
as a general rule, if you have a lot of years ahead of you, you're at 20 plus years. Yes. Then we probably do need to treat mm. uh, because the natural history of those prostate cancers, especially if there's a family history, is that in their lifetimes that will be significant. The beauty of the treatments that we have now is that if we can find someone early, we can come really close to the prostate and we can generally maintain function. Mm. So for my patients, 97% of them don't have long-term incontinence and 85% of them have good erection function. If they start with good erection function and we can save their nerves, then 85% of them will have good erection function afterwards. So it's not all doom and gloom. No. Um, it probably used to be, um, but surgery's changed a lot over the years. What surgical options or what treatment options are there? So if you think about what we're trying to achieve with surgery, there's three things. The first mm -hmm. is to get rid of the cancer, mm -hmm. and, and that's got to be the most important thing. Actually, getting rid of the prostate cancer is harder than you might imagine because of what we talked about before, that there's not a lot of room around the prostate. So you, you don't have much margin for error and even uh, parts of the prostate blend with the organs that are around it. So you've got to get clearance on the prostate mm. whilst staying close to it so that we keep function. So the possibility of leaving cancer behind is much higher than in other, other places. So at the end of the day, probably the biggest variable about whether you get rid of the cancer or not is the surgeon rather than the technique. So a good open surgeon will do the operation with as good a cancer success as a, as a keyhole surgeon or a robot surgeon. Mm -hmm. So that side of things, we know the technique doesn't matter quite so much. Mm. Um, I've done all three types of surgery. I've done, did a lot of them open and then I converted to laparoscopic and then converted to robotics about three or so years ago. Mm. Um, and, and in my hands, the, the rates of cancer control for bad cancers are the same for all of them. For the cancers that weren't quite so bad, though, the robotic has been better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because it allows us to get close to the prostate and have more control over the surgery. Mm. So I, I only do the robotic surgery now. The robotic surgery's got an advantage of better vision and better dexterity or accessibility to all the nooks and crannies you need to mm. get to for the more aggressive cancers too. So we do a lot of big lymph node dissections now. So we don't just take the cancer, we go the next step. Um, and that's very technical mm. and the robot's been very helpful with that. Um, so, yeah, I... And is that uh, a technique that's used all over the world? It or? is. Yeah. It is, it is. So it was a military technology which um, was really pioneered in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's a Silicon Valley company uh, using an American military technology which they adapted. A lot of the aspects of that technology haven't changed a lot. Um, there's a there's a bedside card, a computer, and and a surgeon console, um, and it's not really a robot. It's it's more like uh, I guess playing a video game. Yes. So instead of holding the instruments, you're controlling the instruments, but you can control four instruments rather than two. Yeah, that's amazing. And, yeah, and the camera's just um, you know stable and static yeah. and. The, you know, fantastic 3D vision, all of those sorts of things are, are really good. Um, but what, what's changed over the generations of the robots is that the instruments have gotten uh, longer, better, more dexterity, mm. 
um, and uh, easier to access all the little different areas that we can. So it, it has really changed the operation for me. I can't imagine going back mm. now mm. to either open surgery or, um, you know, I've rarely gone back and done it laparoscopically and, and uh, you know, surprisingly I... I'd, I'd, I'd done well over a thousand of them laparoscopically, but I wouldn't go back. Yeah. Now that we have the robot machine. And so, for a patient, and they they've come from their GP usually, or mm. they've come from a general practitioner, and they're thinking, okay, they're starting to do a bit of research. Would they be um, looking at urologists what techniques or procedures they particularly do, and then? I, I think well, what's what's been good now is that. Uh, and what the robots brought to the table is there's been a bit of a standardisation of the techniques. Mm -hmm. I think what patients should be doing is that they should be focusing on outcomes and results. So if they can see an open surgeon in their area if there's no robot but their outcomes and results are good, they're not missing anything. So how would they know, though? You how have would, to ask. Yeah, you've got to ask. You've got to ask. Yeah. And then... And be okay to ask? Yeah, feel, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And look, the robots are becoming ubiquitous because I think everybody realises there's been a problem with how it's been funded, you know. Mm. You can go and get a cardiac pacemaker put in that might be a $50,000 implant, but to use disposables on a robot... In lots of parts of the world, including Australia, the patients are out of pocket for that, mm. which just seems ridiculous to me now because it's, I don't think it's optional in most cases. I think it's an integral part of how we do it and most surgeons, I would say, are using the robot now. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And so how can men prevent getting prostate cancer? Is there anything they can do to prevent getting it? There, there's really two, two types of prevention. There's primary and secondary prevention. Mm -hmm. So... What we do or, or what we're recommending with people going out and getting a blood test is actually secondary prevention. So yes. we're preventing the disease... From progressing? ...having its natural history, which is to progress, get in your bones and kill you. Mm -hmm. And if, that, if we're then treating with skilful surgery, you can get rid of your cancer and in, still enjoy all the function that you had before... And so that is a form of prevention. So it's preventing the illness doing its job, you know, mm. um, behaving in the way it was going to. Primary prevention is that you never get the disease in the first place. Well, that would be good. Is that possible? Look, I think it's possible to reduce your risk. But what we're dealing with here is a disease that's really common. So if one in five men in Australia are getting it, there's got to be a reason why it's so common. And the reason it's so common is it's a gland that, you know, is highly susceptible to developing cancer. But we know that there are a few things that are really important that can increase your risk. Mm. Some are modifiable, some are not. So genetics plays a big part. Family history is pretty strong. Um, we know from twin studies, we know from looking at uncles, brothers, fathers. Once you start having first-degree relatives in there, then your risk increases by about two to threefold. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a cancer that's already pretty common and you increase that risk two or threefold, then it's very common. Mm. So the, the people with a predisposition genetically and your family history is going to be the best genetic test you'll ever do, mm. um, need to start doing their testing very young and they need to focus on that secondary prevention mm. because if there's a high chance they're going to get it, we've got to minimise the impact of the disease. And you'd be amazed by how many people will have a strong family history but don't get tested. And then they, they're the ones who come in with the really bad cancers. 
Now, primary prevention is about, we used to think it was just all about doing the right things to reduce your, your risk mm. because, you know, if you smoke, for example, you will get lung cancer or bladder cancer or something else. What's really exciting about primary prevention is that primary prevention can actually change your genetic predisposition as well. So it's very powerful. It is. Because mm -hmm. of epigenetics, we can turn certain genes on and off. Mm -hmm. And there's certain things within our control that do that. Prostate cancer is similar to other cancers in that there's no one specific thing. So whereas there's that strong association everyone knows between smoking and lung cancer, with prostate cancer, there's no definite single thing. So the things that we think about with prostate cancer are the same things that are affecting a lot of other things, mm. heart disease and other cancers. So obesity is a big one, and you should have an abdominal circumference less than 95 centimetres to reduce your risk. You obviously don't need to smoke, so mm. no smoking because, yeah. you know, that's not good for anything. Alcohol is important. So what's your thoughts on alcohol? Well, How many standard drinks a day? Or Well, we know from the cancer studies that the safest is no intake at all, but it's not necessarily practical. Um, alcohol's a lot more ingrained in our society mm. than smoking was, uh, which is sort of hard to believe. But mm. um, alcohol, I think, will always be with us. What I recommend to most people is, is don't drink on most days. So if you're not in a social situation, don't drink. And when you do drink, you're trying to limit yourself to two standard drinks. And mm. it's, um, it's very difficult if you see the size of a standard drink, you know, familiarise mm. yourself with what a standard glass of wine is and, yeah. you know, a standard pour and all those sorts of things. But we really shouldn't have any particular day where we're taking larger amounts of alcohol. Yeah. So that's, that requires a bit of a rethink and a bit of discipline, but mm. not having alcohol on most days is probably the first step. Yep. Don't drink in non-social situations. And then when you do, you know, you're not really drinking five, six, seven drinks. You're trying to limit the number that you do have because that's where the carcinogenesis comes in. And there is an, an obesity epidemic going on in all these Western countries. So mm. it's becoming... Oh, it's Difficult, you know, in that they, they seem to be coming up in, you know, we've done a number of podcasts now and, you know, whether it's a podcast with a cardiologist or, you know, it seems to be coming up time and time again, this, we've got to really look at our weight, moving, exercise, what we eat, yeah, our, our drinking, no, and it's now right. crossing over to prostate cancer. Well, no, it's a big thing and, and um, we actually do something about it, so... Um, I have a separate clinic that yes. just does weight loss. So our patients are generally getting about 15 kilos plus off them in the six weeks before surgery. You know, we've had up to 50 kilos off people. So um, you're doing that, patients are doing that prior to... Prior to surgery. Is that because... Routinely. Really? Routinely. Is that also you've seen more success post-surgery if people have lost so, some weight or what's your thoughts on that? So there's a lot of things. So if I, I'll go back to the other, yeah. the other things we were talking about. So we've got the abdominal circumference, alcohol smoking. Mm. The other is physical activity, as you've, you've mentioned. Yes. So you've got the Australian guidelines, which is the same, I think, in the US, is that you need to be physically active every day. And five of those days need to be 30 to 60 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise. So to the point where you can't really talk. Mm. And most people think that's going for a walk, but it's not enough. It needs to have a bit more intensity and twice a week lifting weights. 
And then the fifth thing is just eat more veggies. Mm. Now, it doesn't necessarily say eat less meat, but we do know that eating over 100 grams a day of, of protein is probably increases the risk for cancer. But eating more veggies, veggies are actually protective. Veggies have things so in them that protect them. what veggies would you be an that advocate of? The more colourful of veggies, the better. So we've got two groups. We've got the colourful ones, things like sort of capsicum, carrots, mm. blueberries, all those sorts of things, which are usually pretty tasty as well if you mm. get good ones. Um, and the cruciferous vegetables, so the broccoli, cauliflower, and those sorts of things. They are actually cancer protective. There's wow. something in them yeah. that is cancer protective. So bringing us forward, so what, mm. we've, what we've done with our patients has been really, really interesting and an interesting journey that's gone on for a very long time. Mm. But we can reduce their chance of cancer recurrence after surgery by lifestyle change. So what we do with them is that we get them before surgery because it will make our surgery more straightforward. It makes the anaesthetic less risky. Mm. And so we have a very, very low rate of problems perioperatively. And our patients, the anaesthetists all say, I wish everyone did this because they're so much easier to anaesthetise when they've lost the weight. Mm. And um, how do the patients feel in themselves much stronger and well, healthier going in? I, I started doing this because I had to, because the patient's getting too big to operate on. But what really got me interested in this was the patients were coming back and saying, thank you so much for getting me to lose weight. They weren't really talking about the cancer anymore. They were saying how fantastic they felt. And, and the data across the board with weight loss and exercise programs is that it helps pretty much everything. Mm. So from depression mm. to Alzheimer's to heart disease, stroke, second cancers um, and cancer recurrence. So prostate cancer, you can have it once and be treated and you can get a reoccurrence of it? Or? So cancer recurs for two reasons. One is it's been inadequately resected, which means that um, you know, the surgery, I guess, left a bit behind for want of a better word. Mm. The second is that cancer cells do float off into the lymphatic system or the bloodstream and microscopically might try and set up somewhere else. Mm. Now, the, the, the immunobiology of this is really interesting because if you have a prostate cancer, that prostate cancer has multiple clones of cells, so different genetic versions of itself. And yet only one of those is usually capable of getting out into the bloodstream and, and spreading, which is, explains why cancers aren't more successful at spreading than they, than they are. Mm. And if you can get rid of these, this polyclonal tumour, your immune system has got a much better chance of fighting the monoclonal one. And chemo's got a better chance of, of hitting it as well. So I do a lot of surgery now on, on people who have very advanced disease and even people with metastases in their bones because they then do a lot better if you can get rid of the primary. Mm -hmm. But the lifestyle th side of things, it works for every tumour. Your body produces a cell called a natural killer cell which is released into the bloodstream in larger numbers with intense exercise. Now, most men who get cancer are not fit enough to do intense exercise. Mm. So what we're doing is a, before surgery is the first step. We get them exercising every day and we get the weight off them and that's really preparing them for phase two when we get more exercise. So if you, if you want to lose weight, the first stage is a lot about calorie restriction and then burning it off. Mm. 
in an appropriate way. And a lot of these guys, you've got to make sure they don't get injured, mm. you know, they're big, they don't wreck their joints. There's nothing stops a weight loss program better than getting injured. Yes. So by the time they get to surgery, they're actually quite fit. They've done six or eight weeks of exercise. They're feeling better than they had before. And then they're ready for phase two. And in phase two, exercise starts to take over as being more important. <laughs> and so once you're exercising regularly, you then can build up build up your aerobic capacity and build muscle. And are you building these killer cells which can help? Yeah. Is, are they so, uh, your own immunity to fighting? Absolutely. Not just that cancer but any cancer. So I like to view cancer as something that happens every day. I mean, I don't like to, but mm. I think it's a good way of thinking about it that there are, are things that we do, cell divisions happening every day, most of the time the body gets it right and sometimes it's wrong. Mm. And when it goes wrong we have systems in place to mop up those cells. Now, if it's going wrong a lot because we have a bad lifestyle, mm. alcohol, smoking, being inactive, etc., then we actually need our immune system even more to be working. But if we're sedentary, if we're overweight, it's actually less active. Mm. So we're flipping that around and we're making these people's immune systems more active and we're giving them less trauma to their body yes. so it's that trauma that generally causes blood vessel disease and and uh, insulin insensitivity diabetes and then the next cancer mm. so the vast majority of my patients whether they know it or not have either got diabetes or pre-diabetes and a lot of them the biggest killer of men with prostate cancer who've been treated with surgery is actually heart disease so you're looking two mm. moves ahead. Yes. By getting the weight off them, getting them fit, getting you're them healthy. You're preventing all the other chronic diseases yeah, that they could right. die for. But you, you definitely want to survive the prostate cancer mm. to actually go on to live a reasonably healthy and happy life. But to go through that trauma and to, mm. to almost put yourself at another risk of going back and having prostate cancer. That's right. So the message yeah. that I give them is that I say to them, look, for whatever reason in you, your little biochemical system that is your body, at this age, with your lifestyle, with what you've done, you have developed a cancer. Mm. And the natural history of that is that they'll develop another one and then they'll probably have heart disease. And so they have not only shorter lives but... With, with some cancers, if they're not cured, you end up accumulating more medications, mm. more treatments. And so I just say, look, this is our chance. Your cancer is curable. We're going to cure that cancer. But now what, what are you going to do next? Yeah. What are you going to do next? And it's a fantastic thing to do because the patients are, are completely engaged Mm. And so I'm very happy if we're not impacting the prostate cancer at all, but we're reducing their chance of heart disease. Yes. Um, I mean, we're, we're all doctors. We're all on the same team. Mm. We don't need to stay confined to our own areas. And the patients understand this message. And, and I think what's really good about it too is that it actually gives some power back to the patient. Yes. So when you get a cancer, it's very disempowering. Mm. It, there's this imposter inside your body mm. and this imposter um, you know, doesn't belong there and, and you feel guilty that something you've done has created it even if maybe you didn't. Mm. Um, and so to re-empower the patient by saying, well, there is something you can do yeah. is a very powerful message and the patients really respond to that. And I have people who 
have never exercised in their lives and they wake up from the anaesthetic and they say, when can I get back to my swimming or my, yeah. my bike or whatever it is that they've, they've gotten into. Yeah. Um, and they're very motivated and they stay with it. And I think I certainly came into this podcast not realising the impact of that. There's certainly fantastic preventative ways that we should all be empowering ourselves to prevent cancer. Yeah. And prevent heart disease and everything else. Well, look, the world has changed. Mm. Once upon a time, medicine was very much about getting sick is bad luck. And, and there's still the way that we're geared up is that we are getting better and better at diagnosing and treating. Well, that's our model. Mm. Wait till you get sick, do some clever tests to make a diagnosis, figure out what's wrong and then give the appropriate treatment. This is a complete flip around. Mm. So this is to say, well, hang on a second, it's, it's not inevitable. And why did I get cancer in the first place? Yeah. Or why was I at more risk of getting yeah. cancer? And it comes back to lifestyle. And, and, and this is the, the great malaise of, of the 21st century is that we're all being affected by preventable chronic disease, whereas maybe in the 20th century or before, it was infectious disease mm. and things that, that were, were bad luck. So the message now is that if you're going to get sick, well, you know, kind of it's your fault to a degree, mm. but you can do something about it. And, and probably from your 40s on is when you really need to be doing these things. Yes. And so lasting advice sounds like prevention's the way forward, but is there things that we wouldn't know about prostate cancer and what's the advice you'd give your own family member? Well, look, the, the, the advice I think is that what I've probably suggest you take out of this podcast is that the the world has changed a bit don't wait till you get sick to deal with something look strongly at prevention both primary and secondary primary prevention is in your court you don't need a doctor and you don't need anything expensive to do it do those five things for primary prevention but secondary prevention where it makes a difference is actually really powerful mm. so early detection of disease and in prostate cancer it's been clearly shown that if you detect the cancer early and uh, you undergo successful treatment, then you can be cured. Mm. And it's similar for other diseases and other cancers as well. Um, I keep coming back to heart disease because it's so ubiquitous and so important, but mm. the way we manage heart disease at the moment is that for 50% of people with heart disease, we wait until they have a heart attack before we know they've got it. And yet it's entirely predictable and preventable. And if you apply, if you see the most common killer that's happening and you look at all the things that will prevent heart disease are also going to prevent a lot of cancers, it just should be something that's normal. It should be something that we're doing. And, 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 and doctors, I think, know these things but are so busy putting out fires that we're not the ones administering it. So patients do need to take a bit of initiative and responsibility for themselves. Mm and use your doctors to help you with the secondary prevention and work together with your general practitioner. You bring to the table your primary prevention, JP brings together the, the secondary prevention. In my little tiny organ, my mm. area of the body with this common cancer, um, do the blood test. Yes. Know what your blood test reading is. Know what it is and know if it changes. And start it at the age of 40 and... 40 baseline if you're low risk maybe kick it down to 50 after that or 45 to 50 
Um, and if you're higher risk, you need to be watched really closely because you're the one who's going to get it in your 40s. Sounds good. Thanks for giving us those great tips. Thanks very much. For more information about prostate cancer and Dr Tom Shannon, visit theprostateclinic.com.au. For Australian MediTalk listeners, visit Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia at prostate.org.au. And for overseas listeners of MediTalk, visit pcf.org. You've been listening to MediTalk, a podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You can follow MediTalk podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, please take a minute to subscribe, rate and review this podcast via iTunes or your podcasting app. If you have any health topics you would like to hear discussed, please email them to danae at meditalk.com.au. Thanks for listening.